0: I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating
1: founders share their stories with us before they've made it.
0: Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz.
2: We almost went bankrupt. Um, Personally, we were on the hook for all this money. We had this lease that we didn't know how we were going to find our way out of.
1: On this episode of Unfinished Biz, we chat with serial entrepreneur, author, and current Rebel CEO, Cheryl Laughlin, who was formerly CEO of Plum Organics and before that, CEO of Cliff Bar. But this isn't just an episode about founder success, but how hard it is to be an entrepreneur
0: physically and mentally.
2: I got to make a change here personally, and I need to get out of this day-to-day thing of running a business.
0: Find out how stepping away from everything saved Cheryl and her family, and why working hard without working too hard is a real success story. Unfinished Biz starts now. Companies often don't just have one leader or superstar. A few episodes ago, we chatted with Neil Grimmer, who now runs Habit, but worked closely with Cheryl back at Cliff Bar and then Plum Organics, and eventually took over for her as CEO.
1: I think this one's really going to resonate with the founder community. It's by far our most personal interview yet. I wish every entrepreneur on our show would be as open not only about their successes, but their personal challenges as well.
0: I mean, Cheryl's had such an impressive career, but I think what folks are going to hear is it also came at a bit of a personal cost. We were able to catch up with Cheryl at Rebels headquarters in Emeryville, California.
1: Well, Cheryl, thanks for joining us on the show today. Really glad to have you.
2: I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for asking me to join.
1: Well, in terms of just, you know, really hearing more about your journey, we'd love to just kind of hear how, how did it all start at Cliff?
2: Yeah, well, I actually was working for big companies at the time, and um, really learning gold standard marketing. How how do you do it the best that you can do it? And I started feeling like, well, you know, I was enjoying what I was learning, but I just didn't feel like I was connected to my real passion point. And I was an athlete, I loved to run, and one day I was running on the Chicago waterfront where, where I had lived, and this buddy of mine, who's my running buddy, had in me my first Cliff Bar. And I'd never seen it before. And I tried it. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so good. <laughs> you know, I thought energy bars were these sticky, taffy things. And,
0: just, and, what, and what year was that? Just this a was seven.
2: in, good question, 97. Okay. okay. And I'm old. You know? Oh, not at all. <laughs> we're, we're, all.
1: All we're doing is just, just setting, the, setting up the, the, the journey.
2: Yeah, setting up the journey. Um, so I, at the time I had actually decided, you know, I wanted to look for a brand that I could work on that really tapped into those passions and I, you know, my Cliff Bar thing and Serendipity would have it. My, I got this alumni newsletter three days later and they had this ad to start a brand management function at Cliff Bar. Hmm. I was like, okay, I just got a, it's a sign. I know. A chance. It's a sign. Yeah. And yeah, and that was the start of the whole journey there.
1: And then, what accelerated that to to running Cliff?
2: So when I was the first year after I had joined Cliff, we launched Luna Bar, and that really had changed changed the face of the company. In that, it was about not just one bar about Cliff Bar; it was really about starting to build a portfolio of brands, and really helped set us up for our growth. And that really came out of just this desire to bring something else into the world that, for me personally, really tapped into an area where I felt like I wasn't fully fulfilled in terms of a nutrition need for me as a woman. And connecting it with others at Cliff, they found this, felt the same way, and that eventually led to us introducing Luna. So that started to really prop the growth of the company. And then as we got into the year 2000, the company was almost sold. And what happened at that time was that Gary Erickson, who's the founder and now owner of Cliff Bar, he, he felt we were being told by everyone, and we knew that we, as a small, privately held company, we wouldn't make it because all these other companies had gotten bought out by multinationals, such mm-hmm. as uh, Power Bar going to Nestle at the time, Kraft bought Balance Bar. And as we were just on the precipice of selling, Gary said, I can't sell. And he started to be able to articulate over time the reason why he couldn't sell is he felt like he could do so much more with the business. And you didn't hear a lot about that at the time. Now you hear it more than more that companies can make such Mm -hmm. a difference in the world in a positive way and can can be one of the greatest sources of change. But at that time, Ben and Jerry's talked about it, the body shop did, it was very unusual and he said if i if i have this company within my hands i could help to shape what this company would become if it was in someone else's hands i would lose that opportunity to be able to have that kind of impact and i was just floored by this philosophy my god you know if as as a kid who was very into issues of social justice i thought this could really bring together what i believed as a kid with really what business meant to me at the time, which was kind of you know, a little bit of a source, a little bit of a selfish way of being in the world. And Gary was just, he, he burnt out from trying to r- r- pull the company through this time of almost sale. And he asked me uh, to become the CEO. And it was such an honor to be able to figure out how do you implement this huge vision? How do you truly operationalize it? in the company and experiencing that in my three years as CEO and seeing that a company with this kind of philosophy, a philosophy of helping to do good in the world and create change in the world, it actually could create really good business. And we doubled the company in three years from 100 million to 200 million. The company became so profitable, Gary got his stock certificates back and wholly owned the company. And I saw the power of what would happen with people to feel like they truly own the company and there was a purpose behind what they were doing. And everyone in that company, no one had physical equity, Mm -hmm. including me, because Gary had gone through a very hard time buying out his co-founder. But we believed fully that we owned the company. And that led me to to, to saying to myself, my God, I've got to try this. With the philosophy of my own and before
1: we get into Plum. yeah was that was during was that cliff experience the first time you'd been CEO of a company
2: It was the first time and yeah and
1: what, and what were some of the you know what were some of the learnings that you had during that time period
2: well uh, you know what one of the things that led me to it is i kept i thought this was really helpful was a progression at take, taking on different parts of the company so I had been with marketing, then I started taking on R&D, and I started taking on sales and seeing, just like in in brand management, how you see all the pieces to fit together. I I was there for seven years, so I got to see how this could layer onto each other and how you uh, integrate the functions to really be able to build something great with the company. And the challenges, though, were, my God, when you're in the driver's seat is... How do you make sure – one of my greatest source of challenge in, in my career, actually, probably up until now, is I, I, I've had such a collaborative approach to my mm-hmm. management that it veered into having to have everything be consensus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some leaders that go into being CEO, and they become so over-decisive that they don't listen to anyone I had the opposite problem. I couldn't listen to myself. And I had a very hard time saying, I've got to land on this. I'm hearing all this input, but it's time for me to land and land now. And so that was this bridge. I had a crossover of how do you create that balance where you're truly collaborating with people, but then they're looking to you to make the decision to move forward. You know, really, it was until I got to Plum where I started really understanding how much it was having an impact on people when I didn't do that, and you know, people were starting to come to me and saying, "We have so it's in a startup where there's so much to do, and everyone's doing everything, where it becomes very, very prominent, mm-hmm. um, and we had everyone was overwhelmed all the time, and they were looking to me to set priorities." Well here I'm going like what do you think you know let's mm-hmm. get all your ideas well let's take some time to ponder this and talk about it some more cuz we're all not on the same page so until we all get on the same page we're going to talk this through You know how freaking frustrating <laughs> that is being a, a part of a team and you're like okay we've talked about this five times right. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do next and until people started coming to me and saying I'm dying here. I need you to just tell me what are the priorities. It started to really hit me like this company is not going to move forward to get to its next phase of growth if I keep doing that.
0: And was that more, was was it in starker relief simply because you were at a startup versus a a much larger organization and that's the reason why you kind of discovered it? Or...
2: I think that there was so much in a larger organization with an executive team that had been in place there, there, you kind of have this cohesiveness that helps you to be able to move ahead and where it becomes a little less prominent when the leader is not saying go. Mm -hmm. Um, I can say now having in in this company where as we're getting bigger, I think it is essential and I know it's going to, I know I'm going to do my job better because I do that, but it became painful when mm-hmm. it was a company that was a startup Got and it. there was that much to do so i just want to say i think there's moments where in your career where it's like you can get away with something for a little while mm-hmm. and then you get into this point where all, there's a lot of tension that builds up over over that if you will my, you know there was my own area of my own blind spot mm-hmm. i didn't see it and when it started to become so prominent to me at Plum, all of a sudden, you know, your whole way you look at your leadership changes. You're like, aha, now I can move to the next level of my relationship, this next level of my leadership that you didn't even recognize before because I was blind to it. And I just think that's so important of the leaders that we pay attention to those defining moments that allow us to be able to see into ourselves to say, I can be better at this job
1: in finishing off kind of the, mm. the the cliff the cliff journey, what led to wanting to move on?
2: Yeah, you know, I had grown up at Cliff in so many ways. I'd been there for ten years, and I was just so um, blown away by Gary and what he created and what he his philosophy, and it just became almost like part of me. And in some ways at Cliff Bar, I was becoming Cliff Bar, and I I wanted to take a step back and say, okay, let me now look a little bit inward and understand what is the value that I want to bring, the little value I can into the world. Where do I think there's a gap that I'm feeling the pain of that I want to fulfill as an entrepreneur to help to create change in the world? And my buddy, Neil Grimmer, who I had hired at Cliff Bar to run our innovation, he was also on that same kind of internal journey. And when I thought of who I'd want to start a company with, you know, part of it, there's some people that like the solo ride. I'm not the solo ride kind of person. I like to do it with somebody. And when I thought about if I'm going to take this jump into this world of startup, who would I want to do it with? Neil, I mean, it was the immediate answer. The man is brilliant, a brilliant product innovator, a brilliant branding guy, and I knew that that had to be at anything I did, any company I started. I wanted the core to be based in innovation. So he was the partner. So I had the partner, and the more we talked and just kind of dreamed together, the more we landed on fulfilling nutrition, uh, fulfilling nourishment for kids. In this really rapid to go world with products that would help parents as well as kids to be able to eat healthier, more organic, but also there was a great ch- chasm at the time between healthy and organic food and great tasting food and food that looked cool to kids in the packaging, food that was easy to carry around for parents. It was a great divide. And we both said to each other, Gosh, if we can, if we can shorten that great divide and make it so that you can have all those touch points in a new a new kind of a new generation of how we look at food going back a little bit kind of to our core roots of food but bringing it into present time we both wanted to do that
1: how did you choose kids and babies as the next phase from from a prior life of being in in the bar space
2: it came from a personal pain point. So here, my kids were eight and five at the time, and I was trying to pack them healthy lunches. And I'd put in the banana and the sandwich and you know various other things, and they would come home in a big ball of mush because they didn't want to eat it. They mm-hmm. didn't taste good. Oh, the banana is mushy, and I don't like this. You know, this peanut butter and this sandwich. It's too. It's too. You know, healthy. And, you know, I was fighting against all the junk food out there, and so was Neil. And we we were busy parents, and we had b- very busy spouses. And so the idea of going back and making, you know, their food from scratch, and it, it was just, it was hard. And so... You know, I wanted to forgive myself as a a parent and give myself a little space to say, how can I pack them something that's healthy and organic but allows me as a busy parent to be able to get to what I needed to do? And quite frankly, focus my quality time with them and not focus on packing their friggin' lunches. (laughs) And so as we were starting to explore that, Neil had found this baby pouch or this pouch that you see now all over the place he found it in kids food in the uk it was also very prominent in china for the number of things where the packaging is so much more innovative in the uk and in china and he brought this package over and we're like that's it for for a kid's brand if we can put food in this pouch that's pure that would be a way that is really, you know, attractive to kids and to parents is a to, to way that's very easy to, to take with you. And that led to starting to address babies, which was the big gap. And no one was doing it for babies no, wait, at and, the time. And what
1: was the, and let's time stamp that. What, what, time, what year was this?
2: So that was in, two th- we started the company in 2007. It was called the Nest Collective at the time. And the idea was it was going to be a collective of brands, and we were going to purchase brands that were really small, that had a beautiful brand with a wonderful philosophy of food but needed help on innovating to get to the next level. And our idea was to help companies scale with soul. And it was almost like, if you will, a craft of all, of, but of all these organic brands that have a soul. And um, not that craft brands don't have a soul, but, you know, brands that were really about sustainability and and doing better for the earth and, and for people. And so we had bought this brand called Revolution Foods. Revolution Foods is a food service company that serves amazing, healthy food at a lot of the schools around the country, public schools. I mean, their philosophy is unbelievable in terms of their beliefs around food and changing the food system. And they wanted to do it in the lunch lunchbox. Well, we had the expertise in consumer products, so we said, yeah, well, we, we can help you out. So we actually licensed their name and started these um, products under the name Revolution Foods for the lunchbox. Our first one was this pouch, yeah. which was a fruit puree. Mm-hmm. So we did it under Revolution Foods, and then then we acquired a small, tiny brand, about $800,000 at the time, called Plum.
0: And at that point, was it just the two of you, or was there a team that was being built out? We
2: started to build out a team, but very few people. It was Neil and I, our buddy Bentley Hall, who is amazing, is now the CEO of, of Good Eggs. Good eggs. Mm-hmm. And there, we had a designer and actually an R&D person.
1: So you, bought, you, guys, you guys bought the company for eight hundred from, from Gigi? Right? From Gigi, yeah, oh, Gigi Chang. Right. That's right. Yeah,
2: so she actually came along with the company because she said, and she had this beautiful frozen baby food product that was so pure to the core. And Gigi had created this brilliant brand, but she's like, I don't, I can't take this to the new to to the next level. And she said, you know, in in being with Neil and I, she knew we would be able to take care of her baby, and so she became part of our team in the in the Nest Collective.
1: And then, what, what was the How did you get this launched into the market? How did you get it made? And then was there a particular retailer that really helped you get the the product off the ground?
2: Great question. So we had had this pouch for Revolution Foods. And we were just starting trying to get into Whole Foods and starting region by region and – Building it out, and you know, it was it was it was a slow go in the beginning. As yes, it is, I mean, every startup I, I hear came from a bigger company. So I'm like, oh, it's going to. You should have seen my distribution goals that I built out. <laughs> We're going to get 50 percent ACV in natural right off the bat. Right, wrong, totally wrong. Missed the initial forecast completely. Um, so, you know, you just think you don't realize how hard it is when you're starting from scratch. So Neil and I were at the Natural Products Expo and this was in 2008 2008 and no I'm sorry this was 2009 because we had just we we had just started talking to GG about acquisition so as everyone knows who's been to the Natural Products show, all of the retailers hide their badges. So you don't know who they it is. They turn them around. They <laughs> turn them around. And the finance
0: guys. And the finance guys, <laughs> and, well, and the it's, finance yeah. guys that's right. Yeah. You,
2: you guys know that thing. So um, Neil and I are at the booth, and this guy comes over, and he picks up this pouch, the Revolution Foods pouch, and he's checking it out. He's looking at the nutritionals. He's sniffing it. And, and he said, you know, oh, you know, I've been really curious about this pouch, and do you guys do this for for babies? And, you know, we're like, no, this is, you know, kid's product. And and he flips around his badge, it's the national buyer for Toys R Us, Babies R Us, and he said, listen, I've been looking for this pouch for babies. I can only find it in the UK, and I'm going to import a product unless I can find someone to do it for me. So we're like, oh, um, what are you proposing? He said, if you guys could get me product samples in two months, I will consider taking you, not importing product, and you know, really doing this in a big way. So we go back and we talk to the team. We're like, this is fucking nuts <laughs> because we know nothing about baby food at all. Right. It is obviously a risky area. <laughs> uh, you don't want to screw that up. But we thought, you know, we brought it back to the team, and, and the team was, we, we, said, we said to them, you know, here's our, our goal is to help kids develop a lifetime love of healthy eating, but here we're starting in the lunchbox, where we need to really start is in the high chair. And but this is going to be really hard, guys. If we take this on, we had a very small team. I mean, maybe it was four people, five mm-hmm. people.
1: But you commercialized the pouch under Revolution. We had brand commercialized already,
2: right? it, but the idea of doing something that... so large for, with
1: Toys R Us,
2: so large with Toys R Us, but baby food, <laughs> That's you right? Know, baby food. There's so much regulation. Right. So on Revolution it. was for kids. Revolution the, 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 was pouch, for kids right? for the pouch for the lunchbox, and he was proposing do something from babies right. and. So we so we said to the team, you know, we don't know what we're doing here. This is going to be a really tough path plus we're wanting to do this in a very short period of time. And the team said, you know, let's do it. Let's figure it out. It's going to take a lot of long hours, but in a lot of blood, sweat and tears, but let's do it. And so we went and we just went on a learning immersion of everything we could about baby food and the whole process of how you would make it. And now, I, it, it's, baby food at the time was all in jars. And when you are, make a baby food, baby food in jars, what you're doing is you're cooking the shit out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it tastes like crap. Well, you know, anyone who's been to a baby shower and has tried baby food <laughs> yeah. when they... Blind, you do know, blindfold you and tell you to taste, and guess what? You spit it out it like the babies, right. do. You spit it out like <laughs> the babies. You, you can't tell what the food is. Um, so, what this process was, it was almost like cooking ceviche. It's quote unquote cooked. It's using the acid from lime with ceviche, and that's what cooks the fish. Well, in the pouch, what you're doing is you're using. Uh, you're using um, acid mm-hmm. to make sure that you're making it so the product is, is pure when the baby's eating it. So, so it was a whole different, more complex process. But we had somebody, a manufacturer, who had done that before. So we went down this path with them, learned everything we could, and we, in two months we had product to show Paul. What's his name? Paul D. Paul D., yeah, Paul D. is freaking awesome. Paul D. from Toys R Us. Paul <laughs> D. from Toys R Us. And he was true to his word. He took us and he totally nurtured the brand. And there's a, there's a book. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Building to a Billion. I'm not. So no. it was, I can't remember how long it came out. Probably about seven years ago or something. But the whole idea was, what, it, what has helped to create billion-dollar brands? And one of the points they brought up is they called it The the Big Brother. And they said, if you can find someone as a brand who's kind of like your big brother, um, who I say big sister, who takes care of you and kind of nurtures your growth, that you're kind of like almost riding on the coattails on, mm-hmm. it, it, that helps to pull you in a whole different phase of your growth. Well, that's what Toys R Us did for us. But we also benefited them. This is not a one-way street. Right. For them, they were like, we have never seen a company do innovation so fast and they're wanting to take get themselves into a whole nother level of innovation as a company so we were the perfect partner And they wanted for frequency of purchase and they wanted frequency of purchase so that's the thing Wayne that changed everything was that that category from a retail perspective the baby food category is a loss leader category at the time they were losing money on every baby jar they sold it was to get people into the store and so what happened with Plum when we introduced it is the, the velocities were almost as much, if not on some of the SKUs, as much as it were for baby food jars. So it moved a ton of volume. Was the price differential? It was double the price. Yep. Uh, it was more expensive product to make, but, mm-hmm. but it also allowed the retailer to have normal margin. And the baby jars didn't break. So if you looked at like Amazon.com at the time... Every five jars that got shipped, one broke. Yep. With that kind of loss, this in a pouch that doesn't break, it was a game changer for them. So as people started as retailers started seeing Toys R Us and Babies R Us and what was happening, and also Whole Foods started taking it on more and more, retailers started to see that this is changing the whole face of the category. And now at the time, it was 80% of that category was owned by Gerber and conventional, 80% basically by Earth's best best in natural. And so to try to go, that was another thing that was scary, is to try to go into a category with these established players that really, if you looked at it from a conventional wisdom standpoint, you would never do such a thing. But we knew it was such an innovative breakthrough that – it was worth taking the risk.
1: I'd also imagine the supply chain was pretty challenging as well. I, <laughs> I would assume that they because of the pouch, yeah, the pouch, um, the pouch industry was more focused in Europe. There must not have been a whole lot of oh pouch God, manufacturing yeah. in, in North America.
2: Oh, that was—I mean, just years of pain points. And you know, and we had we'd had definite challenges. We had challenges with the manufacturer in terms of. We had manufacturing issues. The product mixed wrong. When the product mixed wrong, the acid is off mm-hmm. that 's dangerous, so we had to regroup and you know make sure that nothing got out into the marketplace you know it 's stuff like the, the with the pouches itself at that time. the only ones manufacturing it was out in China, and so that created additional challenges and all the time that it took to come out in a boat to get over to us and then we ran out of they had a problem with the pouch, so we had to fly it over. Then that we we I mean you guys know private equity we had, we didn't have the cash to burn on flying it over but at the same time our business could have imploded if we didn't get the the packaging and to the growth
1: us. was so strong
2: yeah and the growth was so strong we couldn't even keep up with the demand anyway let alone when there's a problem with the pouch so it's just like one thing after another, after another, it was so difficult, like every step of the way. But yet, the business is is growing, and we could see it blossoming ahead of us. And competitors started coming in.
0: Well, that was going to be my question: is obviously you've got the established players uh, that you're going up head to head against, and then you've got this new crop of new competitors. Um, how did you kind of think about sort of fighting a war on both fronts?
2: Well, part you know, part of it is. It, it, is not worrying too much about what everyone else is doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was something that Gary taught me about so long ago, is you got to play your game. And when you get sucked into what everyone else is doing, you start, you start to play someone else's game, and that's not what your core competency is. So what we did is yes we were paying attention to that and we knew uh, some of the other players that were coming in some were focused on price some were focused on other things for us it was innovation. So if we could be keep leapfrogging everyone else and you know we were doing that at Rebel also we can keep leapfrogging everyone else and saying okay what is our vision as to what's next that we can stay a step ahead and that we could provide value that others are not providing. And also, and this is a philosophy that we had at Cliff, that we had at Plum, and now we we have here at Rebel, is it's about the art of the food. And a lot of people don't understand that, that it's it more becomes of, is, is about science. And we call people who are working in R&D food scientists. But they're they're basically, in our minds, they're food artists. They're chefs. And how do you think about food from the perspective of the consumer and the enjoyment of taste. A product can be so freaking healthy, but if it doesn't taste good, <laughs> it's not going to no jump. You're it. right. not going to get. It's not going to get purchased. So right. that focus on innovation, but also on exquisite taste from a chef's perspective, has always been a philosophy that has helped me in my companies.
1: But obviously, you know, with that immense growth comes capital needs. How did you guys think about funding?
2: Oh, my God, man. I've thought about funding. I had a fundraise six times. So how we thought about funding then and how I think about funding now are slightly different.
0: Six times over the span of, of how long we we talking?
2: Excellent question. <laughs> it was over... It was over three years. So I basically okay. had a very hard time trying to run the business because I was always fundraising. And so that was the philosophy at the time. Now, also remember, this was in, again, 2008. There weren't a lot of companies, there weren't a lot of VCs that wanted to have anything to do with food. Look, I I had you know been spent time at Stanford after Plum, and all anyone cared about there was um, technology. Mm-hmm. So the VCs, it was too risky because you have to take on inventory. So it was very hard to find investors that were interested in helping company at an early stage. So what we actually did is we had some investors, including our first one, Catamount, who, you know, Jed Smith was re- willing to take on more risk. He had more stomach for risk, and he was an o- had been an entrepreneur starting drug- com than many other VCs had at that time. And so, as as Judd helped us in the whole beginning of it, there were more um, VCs that came on because philosophically they were very bought into what we were doing and how we were doing it. And also, we had a team that was experienced, and that helps also because there's a sense of trust there. Um, now it's very different. I mean, food is hot, beverages right. are hot. Mm-hmm. Everyone's now into the but, space.
1: But your big round, if I recall, was like was
2: 2010, right? Our big round was 2010, 2011. Yeah. So we had gone, to your question, we had gone from w- one small VC round to the next small VC mm-hmm. round. And it was very much the philosophy at the time, too, was just hand-to-mouth, hand-to-mouth. Mm-hmm. And there's some good things about that. But there also strangles potential That's growth right. bef- because of and that. And also
1: distraction. Right. And
2: also complete distraction. So, yeah, I mean, as we talk about Rebel, I can tell you how that philosophy is ch- has changed in terms of what our approach is.
1: But, but in, 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 in continuing that, that down that path on mm-hmm. uh, Plum, so where where did you raise capital from and, and how did that how did that all kind yeah. of progress from there?
2: So it was, visa, it was five rounds of VC rounds. Right. Mm-hmm. So and, and again, that was in a, a, a span of probably two years. Mm-hmm. And and then we started thinking about, okay, we were starting to prove out that the company had legs. And, and it was still only about a $13 million company at the time, but it was now getting into the realm that we needed to take on bigger capital in order to get to the next level. And we started talking to a bunch of different firms we actually at the time it was so complicated because not only were we talking to firms about plum i can't even believe now having been so experienced in fundraising that we did this but we were also at the time talking about potentially merging with another company to make a bigger company all about kids mm-hmm. um and uh, all about kids from from many aspects and so we were also negotiating the potential merger so there was this potential merger that we were talking to investors about at the same time we were talking about plum because we didn't know if we were going to do- go down the merger path or not
0: were you doing all this yourself by the way or did you have advisors well neil, he,
2: well, neil was my partner in every step of the way and the in the company helped but and our investors were helping, but I didn't probably ask as many questions about others outside. I was so naive going in. We, listen, Cliff Bar was funded by the founder. There was right. no other outside capital. I had no fucking clue as to what I was doing. <laughs> and each stage was this new stage of, right. oh, no, I have no fucking clue as to what I'm doing <laughs> yet. So wait a so, second. Oh. Exactly. So down that path, I was like, okay, you know, I had a... I had a bunch of different board member and investor opinions, and I was just trying to make sense of the whole thing. And so that goes into kind of my you know, my blind spot where I'm like, I, I had so much information coming in, I wasn't also getting perspective from the outside to say, wait a minute, let's slow this train down and really think about what we need to do. And me as a leader, what do I think is the most important thing to do? But we did make our way through it in a messy way. And then we ended up deciding the merger didn't make sense. We're a consumer products company. It was, it was very complex, potentially, in a, with a food service part of it. And there were just two such different businesses that we went and we chose the path of being a, consum- focus on being a consumer products company. The, the uh, investor that we chose, who was Catterton, um, and C- Caterton Growth, Mm-hmm. wonderful, wonderful organization. And th- that was their expertise. And they were so cool about it. They were like, we'll go down the merger path with you maybe. We'll go down the solo path with us. But when we chose the solo path, we're like, this is the path we really <laughs> wanted. And they were stoked about it. So they really helped take the company to the whole next level and took the company into along with, uh, along with the leadership to uh, basically a $100 million mark.
1: So post kind of Catterton's investment and obviously had the capital, the growth uh, to grow. Where did you think about your role at Plum, and, and what did you wanted to do from what did you wanted to do do from there?
2: Well, so that takes a circuitous path, which it sounds like. You know, as I get older, I realize you know, and I'm trying to teach my kids this. You think it's a path from A, you know, A to B to B to C. It's a, never it, linear. It, it like doesn't that. Right. go linear like that at all. So at the time, um, as I was doing Plum and been there f- for th- three years and just doing the whole startup thing, which is so draining in and of itself, um, my husband had started a company at the time. And it was called – at the same exact time I started my company, so literally in 2007, 2008, it was called Blue Sky Family Club. And it was, it was this great idea, which was uh, – it was almost the anti-Chuck-E-Cheese. It was a place where kids could go and their parents could go. Kids could do you know, physical exercise and cre- creative activities. And parents could sit down with a glass of wine or a beer. And there would be only healthy food. And it was this beautiful idea that every single parent that we told to, to still to this day, say, oh, my God, that is the greatest idea in the world. (laughs) Tell tell me where to go. I know. Seriously. It was just, like, perfect. And everyone at the time was looking at me like this craft-like portfolio company called the Nest Collective. I don't understand what you're doing, but Patrick, my husband's idea, that idea rocks. (laughs) So... um, so we, the problem was we didn't have any experience in the restaurant business, and we wanted to do this. I had a VC-funded company. This would be our family company that was self-funded um and for various reasons big ones being you know we were building a a play space and Mm -hmm. that was fairly big and we took on a big lease that was twenty thousand dollars a month it was us paying for it on our own then the city had all kinds of delays which they always do in these things by the time the doors opened on blue sky the money was almost gone Mm -hmm. and um it was it was really hard um uh, you know, I had a, again eight and five year old at at the time, and we almost went bankrupt. Um, personally, we were on the hook for all this money. We had this lease that we didn't know how we were going to find our way out of. And so, again, I'm in this startup of my own thing, having you know the pressure of trying to make that work, and I felt like our family was completely falling, falling apart, and my husband was just. Uh, here's a guy who's the most optimistic person in the world. He couldn't even get out of bed in the morning, and, and he would sit there. As I had to get out of bed to go to work, he'd be holding me. He couldn't sleep all night. He literally had to go to the Stan- Stanford Sleep Clinic to s- learn how to sleep again. And he would hold me, and he's just like, don't leave. And I had to pull myself away and go to this job, and it was just It was too much. And Mm -hmm. here I was trying to be strong for Patrick. I was trying to be strong for my company. I was trying to be strong for everyone. And finally, when it started getting better for Patrick, we were starting to get our life a little bit more on track. Plum was starting to really have a life, in some ways, of its own or ready to go to the next level. I was like, I I, got to make a change here personally, and I need to get out of this day-to-day thing of running a business. And so I actually... Uh, one of my dreams was to be part of a university, and you know, I had these visions of the sun shining out the window. Wait, and what,
1: it, year, what year was this? This
2: was in the year two thousand and eleven. Okay. okay, so right after the race. Yep. And so I had always had this dream, and suns, you know, beautifully shining. Everyone's talking about these big, mind-blowing concepts, and all of a sudden, you know, these serendipity moments happen when you're when you're ready for them. I found out there was this opening to run the Center for Entrepreneurial Studies at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And when I went in there to talk about them, literally... The sun shining, they play jazz music in the center of campus.
1: <laughs> is that what it was like Robin too? Because Robin's a double a double that's, Stanford graduate. You know, that's,
0: that's a Wednesday, you know? That, yeah. That's like that's you know, there's always jazz music in, in, the, in the sun. sun isn't the sun always shining yeah, at Stanford? It's it's usually always, someone with a harp kind of following you around. Yes,
2: totally. And there was a balcony off the Center for Entrepreneurial <laughs> Studies, and I was like, okay, this is kinda of good. I need a little break from the day-to-day business thing. I think I I, I think I can, should do this for a little bit. And honestly, I did it for the health of my family, for the health of the company at the time. I thought that was the right thing to do for the company because I couldn't put everything I had into it. And quite frankly, for my own health, um, I ended up with all of that not realizing it even through the whole time I was at Stanford. I had developed anorexia. Um, and I, 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 need, I needed to take that time.
1: Right after the break, we'll talk more with our guest, Rebel CEO, Cheryl
0: O'Loughlin. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can catch up on all our episodes at unfinishedbiz.com and chat with us on Twitter at unfin Subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or any podcast app of your choice. If you love the show, we'd love you to rate us and review us.
1: Five
0: stars. <laughs> Thanks in advance for the feedback. And now, back to our episode with Rebel's Cheryl O'Laughlin.
1: How did you overcome so many of these challenges which were both personal and from a family dynamic and professional at the same time? How did you how did you first discover the issue and then how did you overcome it? And then how did the yeah. book play a role in that?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, like I said at Stanford, I didn't fully either I didn't want to see what was happening with myself. And I had people over the years telling me more because this really almost went on because Stanford was 2 years it's probably went on about 4 years or so um, i just didn't want to see it and i had people increasingly over time saying some, something is wrong you, you and i was i was con- it, for me it was a sense of control i know in reflection back because my life was falling apart but yet when i ran a real lot and when i cut down on my eating the scale went in the right direction. You know, who doesn't want to lose a few pounds? And it was something I could control. I couldn't control anything else, but I can control that. Um, and everyone's telling me, "Wow, you're losing weight! Oh, you're losing a lot of weight!" And for me, I'm like, "Cool. You know, I'm losing. It's working. What I'm doing. I I do X. The result yeah. is Y. Mm-hmm. And health
1: was always. And healthy eating was always a. And health, you know, health overall was always a focus.
2: Health overall, the ironic thing is right. here. I'm, I've yeah. been in food companies my whole career, and I was doing everything against what I actually really believed from a business philosophy and philosophy standpoint as a human being. I was ignoring my own humanness, I think, at the time. Um, and so when I left Stanford, I thought, okay, I, now I don't have any. I didn't have any day, day-to-day pressure And I felt super depressed. And I was like, something... I'm starting to realize something is wrong with me. I'm clearing out all this stuff. Something is wrong. And I started doing something about it. Um, And... I s you know, I started seeing a therapist, I started seeing a nutrition therapist. That was like three times a week. I'm going I'm going to therapy. I didn't have time to do anything else. But I involved my family. My mm-hmm. kids would come they came to therapy sessions with me so they can understand and they could help. Patrick would so he can understand and he could help. And I what I started realizing and I had I had thought about this at Stanford, but it didn't really come to Ruth so personally until after I left Stanford. But, you know, I'd have at Stanford these students that would come to me and they were like... I have the greatest idea in the world, and the, so many of them are so brilliant. But they had billionaires teaching them classes. They had money growing off trees at Sand Hill Road. It was like so easy to get money for Stanford graduates, but yet they had no idea the hardship that you go through as an entrepreneur. And I started thinking about the media and everything you hear in the media. No one talks about the mm-hmm. hard stuff. Everyone just talks about... This clear we were talking about yeah. this even before right. we started That's it's right. this clear path to right. glory and it's this perfect case study that works out perfectly that is not true at all it's a bunch a load of shit mm-hmm. and so what happens is many times entrepreneurs are suffering in silence their health is suffering there's actually a, a first of its kind study that was done by a guy named dr Michael Freeman who's out of UCSF and also out of um teaches at Berkeley, and they found a correlation between things like drug abuse but also ADHD and entrepreneurs and um, and depression and entrepreneurs and so what you know what the conclusion was of the study that Dr. Michael Freeman did and I was living it myself is as entrepreneurs there's a light side and a dark side so it 's the things that drive us it 's our Passion and our focus and our just doggedness and getting the shit done. The will to win, mm-hmm. the will to win, and the grit. But the other, the dark side of that is all of the stuff that we're talking about, right. falling into depression and f- in in falling into now actually fully into ADHD or whatever it may be.
1: And the book, in the, is the book a way to to really share that?
2: A book was a way to express it because I couldn't do it one on one with everyone that I wanted to. I still can't, but my book was my way of saying, "Look, it—we've got to pay attention to this stuff. We've got to talk about this stuff." And quite frankly, when I finally went through my all of my recovery work, to be able to realize, I am not my company, and. I never will be my company. Yes, it's reflective of me in terms of what I want, the change I want to see in the world. Yes, I care deeply about the brand, and hell yeah, I care uh, deeply about every single person in it. But it is not me. And if if something happens wrong with the company, it doesn't mean I'm wrong and I'm bad. And so many entrepreneurs have their identity and in their self yeah. all intertwined into that. And until I could separate that. I wasn't ready to start another company.
0: So when you opened up that discussion with mm-hmm. the book, and well, what was the reaction from sort of other entrepreneurs?
2: <laughs> no one. This is how I'm feeling, and no one says this. And mm-hmm. you, this book reflected to me everything that it kept inside and is it has kept me isolated. And uh, you know, I uh, there's this. Um, I'm on this board uh, uh, called Once Upon a Farm, and I was just like, I was so floored because just the other day, the the head of sales actually is taking the book and starting a dialogue with her team to say, let's talk about what we're afraid of. Let's talk about where our vulnerabilities are. Let's talk about the things that have happened in our lives that scares us. She's using it as a platform to say, let's have a deeper conversation here so we're all continuing on this ride in the most healthy way that means the world to me. Just that one, if there was one book sold because it helped make the difference there, that means the world to me. That's what I was hoping for with this book. Um, But it's interesting because the book, as I finished the book, actually had started in Rebel. So it was interesting to see come to almost a conclusion in the book that I didn't expect to get to before Rebel. Mm -hmm.
1: And how did, you, you know, so how did you know when you were ready for that next phase?
2: Well, um, Paulo Hocken, who's co-founder of Rebel and is now the chief innovation officer, was a CEO at the time, was looking for an independent board member on his board. And we had met in the early days of Nest, and Neil and I tried to hire him because we're like, this guy is brilliant, (laughs) and we want brilliant people, and he's so creative. He's the most, again, like Neil, one of the most brilliant product innovators, and in the beverage space bar none. he's amazing. And so we tried to hire him. We couldn't get him. He was uh, co founder of Bossa Nova at the time. And he had sent me this random link- LinkedIn because we had lost touch. And he's like, hey, I'm on this cool company called Rebel. You know, I'd love to talk to you about it. So as we're talking about it, and I'm learning more about this brand, and it, you know, it tasted so good and had these herbs that come from ancient wisdom. And they had a really powerful, actually, Significant impact on people and their bodies and how um, people feel. Again, known by ancient wisdom and now science is confirming that it's true. And I'm talking Apollo, and he's got this mind-blowing philosophy on pr- the purpose behind business. And uh, Rebel was started by a nonprofit. Uh, you know, it was a cause looking for a company versus a company looking for a cause. It's just the whole thing. I'm like, click, 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 click. Oh my god, <laughs> yeah. this is really cool. So I, so I said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'd be happy to join the board. So as the more I spend time in the board and more I'm getting to know the brand, I'm like, my God, this is the kind of brand that I've seen, the kind of purpose that I've seen and more, and the kind of people and grit and creativity, intelligence and passion that this has got this magic combination of these brands that I have seen that have just been brands that create great change and create great business and what year was this you're so good about asking <laughs> years um i try to forget them um <laughs> this was in 2000 and probably the beginning of 2015 okay. and
0: that's when you joined the board
2: and that's when i joined the okay. board and then so then paulo says to me we we're starting to go into fundraising mm-hmm. mode and paulo is like Cheryl, I've never wanted to be a CEO. He had been the CEO for three years because it just, he kept saying, okay, I'll do it. He's the nicest person in the world. He wanted, he's a product innovation guy and a philosopher that's, and an artist, and that's what he wanted to be doing. So, you know, thinking about this, like, okay, we were thinking about, okay, we can hire a CEO to help, to do this, and I thought, well, you know, I can help these guys out. Why don't I? I'm spending so much time helping them on fundraising anyway. Mm-hmm. Why don't I just help out? And I'll be an interim CEO. I'm like, you know, th- I'll I'll do this. I'll help you guys out, but it's just the interim. I, I'm not <laughs> going into this thing yeah. again. And I'm telling you guys, like, the more I got involved, more I was like, oh my god, oh my god, this is it. And I, and and I, but there was this th- thing, and I don't even know how to describe it, but. It felt so different for me. I felt so grounded as a person. I had been through my recovery, and um, I, you know, I really just got grounded back into who I am and what's important to me. And it was interesting because as we're doing, you know, we're thinking about CEO we want to bring in for the long term. The more I'm like, you know what, I kind of am feeling like I want to do this thing again, and I feel like I'm ready for it, mm-hmm. and. I've got this this team with this company that I want to do this with, and that is like to me the ultimate. What somebody played back to me the other day in an interview, which I never fully realized, is that he said to me, "He's like the more I talk to you, Cheryl, the more I realize you do this out of love. Like I do this because I love these people. That is part of the big the really that is the core reason I do this because I love this brand. For me, if it's it's a love affair. It really is a love affair." And funny, speaking of love affairs, so my husband, you know, here, he had been through all this. We had been through all this trauma together. And um, coming from blue sky and the anorexia and everything else, and he's like, the last thing we need is for you to go back and do this again. <laughs> and he was really, and he will say this to anyone. I didn't want her to do it, mm-hmm. and he was very resistant. And we were <laughs> we were getting a lot of arguments about this. And I'm like, Patrick, I I gotta trust me. I feel ready. I really feel ready. And he didn't buy it. And then there came to be this period of time where we sat with it for a little while. It was probably a period of about four months or so, as you know as I'm doing the fundraising stuff, and he's like, "You know what? I actually really think you're right, you're ready and I jumped in head first and it's been it's been really it's it's more than a love affair now. it's just like this it is a it's a marriage it's 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 a family it's the, I'm doing what I meant to be doing right now
1: that's great and and also Explain rubble, You know, explain Rebel. Explain Adaptogens. Explain what the What the brand's all about?
2: It's a coconut milk based plant drink, and very much about the goodness of the plant queendom. And everything is is pure to the core. If you look at the the label, it's a very very clean label. And what is so special about what Paulo did, besides bringing plants together in a way that tastes so beautiful and so good and such an artistic artistic way, he also had the foresight to say these herbs are something that people are going to get. And people are going to get more and more. And it's going to change pe- the way people think about functional beverages and also functional food. And so what adaptogens are is it's, it's things like uh, maca, and reishi mushroom and ashwagandha. So ashwagandha for example, um, these these came down again from from ancient mm-hmm. wisdom from ayurvedic philosophy, Chinese medicine, South American medicine using them forever. And what with ashwagandha for example, what scientists are starting to realize is that there's clin- there's clinical evidence behind that this, these it, they really work. They mm-hmm. work to adapt to your body. So it helps you in terms of if you're overstressed, these herbs will help to calm you down. If you're understressed, it will bring you up so you have more energy. Literally, it adapts to your body, and we hear a lot about the trend of customized nutrition, personalized nutrition, This is the most natural form of personalized nutrition that you can have. So he beautifully incorporated these herbs into the product, and first of its kind, the first beverage to ever do it. Now you're starting to see it more and more. You're starting to see it more in beverages. You're starting to see it more and more in food. You're starting to see it throughout the whole entire store in terms of categories of where people are going to shopping to say. These are herbs that I want to have as part of, of part of my really healing regimen, if you will, or nutrition regimen. And,
1: and what learnings have you had from both Cliff and Plum that you've directly applied where you got, I'm, I'm this is how I'm going to do it, Rebel, based on these other things that I've learned from my past?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many. <laughs> so many. I mean, we could be here for hours, but it's easy when you're only for performance focused to say every day is so busy i can't bother f- thinking about this per- purpose shit it's just like it just gets in my way i just got to get this this stuff done on the other ha- end of the spectrum there's a lot of times in entrepreneurial companies especially a lot that are starting now that they they're started with a sense of of wanting to accomplish a purpose but the company gets so lost in the purpose that it forgets about that purpose ain't ever going to happen if the company doesn't perform. So that marriage of the two and finding the right balance of the two is something that is very, very important to me. Um, Very, very important to me. And to that end, that leads to another philosophy, uh, another thing that I've learned that I think is very interesting in this time now which and the time even when we were doing plum there were not a lot of people experience people that have had experience in companies and know how to know how to run companies and run their function really well and people that understand how do you develop a pur- purpose-driven organization. To me, it's essential. I will not, not do it unless it's purpose-driven. I h- have hired the most experienced leadership team I've ever hired in my career. And I'm lucky enough to have investors behind it who believe that believe in how much that's going to make a difference to the growth of the company. So, for example, Ch- um, Chuck Engel is our SVP of sales. He, you know, he did, he was at kind Bar and built Kinebar up. He was at Stonyfield. He was with Izzy Tea, and Izzy, when it was bought by Pepsi, the guy has years of experience in both purpose-driven companies and performance-driven companies. That's right,
1: some of the most iconic purpose-driven brands.
2: The most iconic. Rusty Porter, our SVP right. of marketing, she came from Crave. Crave. Has just mm-hmm. been part of the building of Crave and was part of Vitamin Water in the early days. Every single person has had that kind of experience. So it's really neat now, having been able to bring them together, it's been about five months now, to see this team that just gets it in their gut but knows how to take this company to the next level and get us to scale. That is huge. And the third thing you asked me about this, Mm -hmm. between both of you in terms of fundraising, is, again, we were lucky enough to bring in investors that get the CEO and the leadership team cannot be out fundraising all the time. It's, they call it the entrepreneur's dilemma. It's mm-hmm. purely an entrepreneur's dilemma. We need to be running this business, and in our, our, we've have, we have wonderful investors, including investors that have been with the company for a long time, and the institutionals. Power Plant, who's um, started by Mark Grampolla, is one of the folks that started it, the founder of Zico Coconut Rotter, and now um, bigger Mm -hmm. is with Dwayne Dwayne Primovich, Carol Byers from Boulder Brands, and also Bill Bill Weiland from Presence Marketing, the largest natural food broker. These guys know how to run businesses. And so their philosophy is very similar to ours, to get it so that we're focused on running the business. And they add a ton of value because they get beverage businesses. So for the last year and a half, I've never had this kind of space (laughs) to actually run the business. And I'm telling you, the business has is killing it right now, and I think it's a result of being able to focus on it. Um, we're blowing away our budget, blowing way blowing away last year, and we're on a tremendous runway. And I know it's because we've brought the right people in, we have a great team, and we're focused. And,
1: and did you find that any of the previous experiences didn't have this dynamic? Did you find that the team was not quite as experienced, or you had a different board dynamic at Plum?
2: The team has been experience, but it's been pockets of experience as opposed to the whole entire leadership team has had very similar amounts of years of, of experience. And that's only because there's been now enough companies out there that you can get that kind mm-hmm. of experience. Like. So that's the difference. There were amazing teams, but it, it it took us, you know, it took us a while to get there at Cliff to bring on all of those kind of players. And with Plum we did the best that we could at the size of the company, but we couldn't bring in all players like that. Now we're we we have enough scale to be able to do it and we have the investors that may really want to make sure from the get-go all of those players are deeply experienced. And, and was
1: there something particularly different from an investor base, an investor approach, and a board approach that was is different today at Rebel than than at Plum?
2: I think we had we also had an amazing board at Plum and amazing investors. Um, it, but there wasn't consistency always in that you know and I I had a number of investors and I did have and I talk about this book a challenging particularly challenging investor who didn't necessarily share that kind of philosophy and it was, it was a tough it was a tough go and you know it's a blessing in disguise now and I look at everything in terms of the silver lining um so we can talk about the most recent events um it, it, he, you know, this person taught me a lot. This person, Larry, he taught me a lot about what I believe in my soul as an entrepreneur is needed to grow a company. And at the time, I, you know, I was just so new to a startup and in, in growth company like that that I, I was learning as I was going, and that it helped to form my philosophy. So when we brought in Power Plant. Part of the reason we brought in PowerPlan, you know, almost 99% of the reason, is Mark is deeply experienced in beverages. He has run beverage businesses. His philosophy behind Plant is all on plant-based foods. It, and a great fit. guy. And a <laughs> wonderful, wonderful person. And, and I'll tell you that I have that throughout my whole board is... we've we've not always been up. There's been ups and downs, but this is a board that understands the long term and and have been through hard times with their own businesses, so they know how to hold hands. Wayne, you and I were talking about this for a long time the other day. Know how to hold hands with the entrepreneur and say, we're in this together, versus you're the one that has to solve this and you're doing everything wrong. And I tell people, entrepreneurs, all the time, you have... Got to understand your investors, not just what they're telling you in the moment, but what they're not telling you. It can
1: never be an us versus them. Everybody's going to row, got to row the boat together.
2: When you're in a point where you 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 need res- you're never going to have enough resources, and you need to be able to be not overraise. You don't want to overraise and make it so. Hey, I'm going to raise money for three years out because the company is going to evolve so much to mm-hmm. them. But take enough money to give yourself some runway to run the business and also to make it so you can get to a level where you're really proving out the next valuation and you have time to do that. Mm -hmm. And so for me now, I look at, okay, this 18-month time frame makes sense. Two-year time frame makes sense to me because it really takes a whole step change to the next level. And if I could get the right partners – to do that with, that two years, I can build a shitload of value. If I don't have the right, right players in, yeah, it might make sense for me to take little bits of money so I can get to just try to get to enough of a level so I can get to the right players. But you're constantly distracted. On, you're constantly distracted, constantly. And so, so and my it's hard enough. It's, it's hard enough to build a
1: business, right? It's and hard enough what to do build you, a business. What do you think are the biggest challenges for Rebel today and in in kind of the near future?
2: Uh, one one of the things I think is that the uh, the functional beverage space is so bifurcated. There's so many things all over, and there's not, so many different kinds of beverages in that space. And like you look at the grab and go section, and I think what is happening is there's a shift now. What I believe is starting to happen is there is a shift, in what does it mean to be a truly functional food, and I, and th- a functional beverage, and I think you know for a long time there was the talk about nutraceuticals, mm-hmm. and but I think of that as like you know kind of like space food, but I think <laughs> now that you know Rebel represents a, a truly functional. And I think kombucha is the same thing. Like, it does something functional for your body. Yes, in the grab and go section, there are a lot of very nourishing drinks in there. But it's it's different to say, how is this actually performing a specific function on my body and my overall health and, and healing if I need it? And even when you look at how... Um, Nielsen and Spins define functional food. There's a lot of functional beverages, sorry, I keep saying food as a general category, but there's a lot of brands in there that have been around for a long long time and you know, some of those brands in there their trends are not great. Because I think what has happened is we have not yet now from a retailer perspective and from, you know, even a data perspective really cut the data in a way that really reflects where functional Beverages are going and mm-hmm. where the consumer th- wants functional beverages to go. So I think a challenge for us to, is to say, what, is it, you, what does it mean to have a product with these herbs in it? What does it mean from a functional, uh, fun, from functional category space? And where does that mean that this category should go all, over time? When you have kombucha that's about gut health, that is a real, you know, very hardcore function those you know those things belong together. That's right. What doesn't belong that is not providing that, that function in that way. That's a challenge for us to explain that to retailers. But what I want to be able to show over time is how the consumer is shopping. An example of that being consumer is now going all through the store looking for these herbs. Damn right they're going into that shelf the the grab and go set looking for that. So how do you set up the shelf that you're saying as they're looking for these things around the rest of the store? How do they find it easily in my section, not in the way we're splitting it now?
1: That's right. So I think you know I don't want to take words out of your mouth. Outdated planograms within stores, right? Where it's set up for a different generation of food and beverage, where so much innovation is occurring that's faster than the shift in how they lay out retail and exactly it's a challenge for so many of our brands yeah. that, yes. that, that you know in the same
0: respect so across the different businesses that you've been at was there ever a bet the company moment
2: yes and it was when I started at rebel uh, so rebel again as I had said it had been born out of a uh, out of a desire to help end human trafficking and that is at the core of Our philosophy to this day. It was started by a nonprofit called Not for Sale, and you know, Not for Sale. Really, they brought Paulo in, Dave Bestone, who runs Not for Sale and who is on our board, brought Paulo in and said, "How can we get the best beverage innovator to help us to build what is so interesting?" Because I think it's it is the next generation of how nonprofits and for profits will work, which is a joining of those and saying, "How do we?" Uh, have Rebel is almost like a tool to help to, to, for, to fight human trafficking. And we have some, getting to your question one second, we have the power to do it not only by the 2.5% of our net sales, not profit, but sales that we give back to Not For Sale to do their work on rehabilitating people who have been trafficked, but also we. that's down the stream when it's already happened. We work up the stream with all our growers to help, to um, help them to have a livelihood so that they're never vulnerable to trafficking to begin with. And the fact that now we do business in 26 countries that with vulnerable populations, that impact is huge. Mm-hmm. So, so think about it. You know, here's Not For Sale. They started this brand, and the first product they came out with was a tonic. It was this tea-based drink. And that tonic had been around you know, in 2015 when I joined the company, and it was doing well. Um, definitely hit the good standard, um, but then Paulo introduced the rebel elixir, which is the, the coconut based drink on the market in mid two thousand and fourteen so it was only about six to eight months you know I joined it was probably in March of two thousand and fourteen and it took off I mean the velocities are like the drool, like oh my god we 're onto to something here. Um, but again, having been started by this company, the heart, so much of the heart, and not for sale, was around these tonics that they started with. So I came in. There were only five of us. I was the first, first, fifth employee, and we started. I, you know, introduced the company to an annual planning, a long term term strategic planning process. And I'm looking at these five people, and I'm looking at the tonics, and I'm looking at the elixirs that are two different products manufactured differently, different co-packers, and I was like, you know what, we got to ride this horse. we got to ride this strong horse of this elixir product, and if we could get the five of us focused on doing that, we're going to have a much better time at being able to leverage this opportunity. Well, when I shared that with, with our board, there was a lot of reaction to, Oh my God! you know you can't this you know this, this is tonic, how it started this is how it started, and the tonics doing well proved to me that betting on the elixir makes sense it's only not been in the market for that long, and it took a course of a number of conversations to say to say that this is how we're going to build this great brand, and this is how we're really gonna make it so that Not For Sale can accomplish what it wants to accomplish. And this business is gonna evolve all the time. And what we need to keep asking ourselves is how do we keep getting better? And how do we let go of some of the past that we've been through, which has really allowed us to get to the next level? And so, man, it was a bet the company moment, but thank God, (laughs) that one worked. It worked in a big way.
1: Well, the the journey of entrepreneurship is never easy. Um, yeah. are, is there a particular low point that stands out in your mind that resonates with you?
2: It, it was the low point we talked about when I, at the time in Plum, and here was my baby, you know, and I you know, I guess you, I'm going to have to learn how to let go of my two children babies, <laughs> one of which is almost 17, pretty soon. But that is freaking hard to do. And But I knew it was the right thing for me, my family, and for the company. And I think in terms of for entrepreneurs to think about is people think when they start a company that I've got to be there forever. The company won't be the same without me. And quite frankly, some of the time I think it's our ego and we might not even realizing it say saying like the company can't be without me. Hopefully the company is going to go on way beyond the the founder or the first CEO or whatever it may be. And I think it's really important for us as founders to say, I know when my time is to be there, and I know when my time is to walk away. For, and, and we have to be willing to say goodbye. And you know what? A lot of what I saw at Stanford, you know, is a lot of companies, the board is saying bye-bye. Yeah. Don't you want to control your own destiny there to say you're so in- introspective to know when mm-hmm. it's your time, even, it's bef- even if it's a little bit early?
1: But with such a, such a storied career as an, an entrepreneur there's got to be a lot of different highs. Is there one that stands out
2: Oh uh, you know i ha- I have to say it's it's being at rubble now and having kind of really gotten my arms around myself and my family and what 's important to me when i every day that i 'm part of this company is pure joy to me because i I just have my priorities in the right place. And I feel like I'm leading with so much more confidence than I've ever had before because I get that. Hopefully so it doesn't take a lot of the founders listening to this as much time as it took me to figure <laughs> it out because it took me a long time. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's I, I can find pure joy in it. I know why I'm here. I know why I'm here. It's largely because of be, loving being with these people and having such a great time right now. And when the time comes that if the time comes that it's like, you know what I feel like I've added I've added what I can add here and I'm and, you know it's it, the you know the it's time to move on I'll, I'll know that you know I will know that and so I think it's just having the confidence now to be here and just having the pure joy of the moment that is the that is the most joyous moment I've ever had in my career.
0: Cheryl's story is particularly inspirational for me because she just didn't shy away from the dark days. And I think as an entrepreneur, you've got more than your fair share of those.
1: Absolutely. A few episodes ago, we had Neil Grimmer, who was her former business partner at Plum Organics, at a, different, at a different level. He actually he had his own health issues as well, which inspired him to start Habit. But it's ironic that during their Plum Organics days, they had a company that completely focused around health for kids and families.
0: That's right. I mean, I think it's interesting that she shed some light on co-founder dynamics, but I think she also really spent a lot of time talking about how this affected her family. And so it's just a, a, a telling story of just, it's not a solo trip you know you're bringing you're bringing your entire family along with you
1: no matter how they want to think about it it's not just entirely about work i mean and this story was about as deeply personal as we've had and at the end of the day it is all about family and i think Cheryl more than anybody we've had on the show really does a great job of showing us what's really important in
2: life one of my favorite things to do is every friday after we're winding down for the weekend, Patrick and I sit, we sit in front of the fireplace, and we have our glass of wine, and we just talk to each other. And I'm telling you, that is one of my favorite things ever to do is just talk to my husband. We've been married now a little over 20 years. Congratulations. And thank you. And every time I have a chance to sit down and talk to him, I'm like you're really cool. I really (laughs) liked you. I married you for a reason. And then a lot of times on Saturday nights and we're doing it for my son's birthday this Friday, he's going to turn 17 and we we just do, we do little family parties and we make up reasons so it doesn't have to be a birthday. So we, one of the themes is sushi party. It's sushi party night, so we make sushi together. And I love Sounds that. Sounds yeah, really fun. It's really uh, fun. You don't want to see what the sushi actually <laughs> <laughs> looks like, but it tastes good. No. It tastes really, really good. That's great. So yeah, it's, it's those moments that I just soak in. I love to hike. It, it's moments, that you, as you said it well, it's like the craziness of entrepreneurship can be going on around, but I need to have these Oasis moments, and I know that. Like at night now... If I get lost in my work, Patrick will say, okay, time to shut off and remind me that it's time because you can't be going all the time. It's not healthy. You've got to be present. And I think a lot of times that's what entrepreneurs forget about is there's always going to be so much work, and they feel all this pressure of all these things that everyone wants them to do, investors, board. But what the investors and board want is for you to be healthy so you're around to run this company and make it a healthy company. And and my family reminds me of that. I remind myself of that. And I've been around this block to know that I ain't going to get a lot more done if I work for the next two, three, four, ten hours. Mm
1: -hmm. All right, Cheryl, we've gone through some serious topics, and these are the most serious ones we're going to do. It's a (laughs) rapid-fire game, 60 seconds. Say the first thing that comes to your mind. Are you ready, Cheryl? Ready. All right, let's go. What's your favorite movie?
2: Oh, uh, Jacob's Ladder.
1: Karaoke song you're most likely to belt out?
2: Uh, uh, Sweet Caroline.
0: Your hometown is famous for?
2: Uh, Being down deep in the south.
0: (laughs) What's your guilty pleasure? Uh, uh,
2: It's, uh, I have to say this sounds like a bad, uh, it's chocolate chip cookies actually. It is now, if I really think about it, it's chocolate chip cookies. I'm thinking too much.
0: First car you ever drove?
2: Oh, um, it was a Ford Tempo piece of shit.
1: <laughs> Runner up name for your business. It didn't make the cut.
2: For my business? Well, Nest Collective.
0: Uh, do you recline on airplanes?
2: Somewhat. I have to say that I have to be watching a movie or something. If so you know. could drink
1: one thing for the rest of your life besides water, what do you choose?
2: Wine you and rebel.
0: <laughs> what was your last New Year's resolution?
2: Uh, was to not make New Year's resolutions.
1: If you were stranded on an island and could only bring one thing, what would it be?
2: My family.
0: Last hashtag that you used.
2: I don't use hashtags.
1: Next place you'd like to travel?
2: Uh, I've just been back from the Maldives for my 20th anniversary, Ooh, so nice. Sri Lanka, actually.
0: Uh, move, if a movie was made of your life, you'd be played Bula. That's it. Good, I'm nice. good. Go okay, one, no, no, one, one last p- question. One last question. Oh, yeah, one last it. question. All right. For everybody out there who's listening and and who's really kind of going through the grind right now, any words of wisdom?
2: Just make sure you take care of yourself and keep your self-worth intact. Most companies do not make it. And for us to be uh, put all of our self-worth on this company is just something we, we have a long life to live. And so just really separating that, staying healthy, doing what's important for you and the people that you love, because that also feeds into the company.
1: Well, Cheryl, thanks for joining us today. This has been a, it's been great. Thanks for the realness of the conversation. We appreciate
0: um, it.
2: Thanks, guys. Thanks much. Fun. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We'll be back in the next episode
1: with Zach Normanden, co-founder and CEO of Dirty Lemon Beverages, a healthier and more practical way to detox. But that's only part of the story. Because as an entrepreneur juggling business and family, Zach had habits he needed to detox from as well. I would drink like two five-hour energies like at night just to like stay up
0: as long as possible. It was just like the dumbest thing of all time. That's next time on Unfinished Biz. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at unfin underscore biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com.